if you would, uh, to find in your Bibles the book of Job. Uh, it's uh, previous to Psalms, and Psalms should be right around the middle of your Bible. And uh, here in just a second, we're going to uh, we're gonna actually read a big chunk of this, uh, the first two chapters of Job, because it's a story, an unlikely story, and um, I want us to hear it as such. But before I read to you that story, um, I want to read to you another story, maybe a story that many of you are familiar with. It's uh, just a short portion of it. Uh, it's about a boy named Alexander. Perhaps you're familiar. It begins, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible Horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. Alexander goes through his terrible day, and as he returns home, and the book ends, we read this. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner. I'll argue him on that point. But he says, and I hate lima beans, there was kissing on TV. And I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. And when I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And the last line of the book says, my mom says days are like that, even in Australia. I love that book. I love the wisdom of that book. You know, when we face difficult times, <clears throat> We ask difficult questions. We look for escapes and we ask these hard questions as a way of potentially stumping someone. Many times the questions that arise become barriers to our faith, when in reality I think many of these tough questions are meant to show us the beauty of the majesty of God. And so we're going to go through the book of Job uh, at a very high level. There's like 40-some chapters, so we're not going to hit every chapter, but we're going to look at four really big questions that Job asked throughout the book over the, the course of the next several weeks, and we're going to bring those questions into our context. So we're not going to be able to answer those questions, and for some of you, I just drove you crazy from the beginning of this. We're not going to be able to answer those questions, but we're praying that God, by His power, would shift our heads and our hearts as we wrestle with these questions so that these questions shift from being those barriers to our faith to being things that help us marvel at the beauty of God's glory. And before we can adequately wrestle with these questions over the next several weeks, we need to grasp Job's story. It's an unlikely story. Uh, it's a story that many of us can't even begin to fathom. But as we listen in on some incredibly important conversations, we can discover who Satan is, we can discover who God is, and ultimately we can discover who we are within the context of hard times, difficult circumstances. So uh, if you found Job chapter 1, or if you're following along with us on the screen, uh, as best you can in a metal chair, 
settle in and let's enjoy the story of Job. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. So he had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. That's, a, that's the beginning of a story right there. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. Helicopter parent. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. This guy is incredible. He not only watches out for his own life, but his kids as well. So one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him? This is apparently why we pray for a hedge of protection. I just... Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, that messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very, no, that's not in the text. But it's a pretty bad day. And then Job stood up. He tore his robe. He shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. And throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Well, one day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? And he said, from roaming through the earth and walking around on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for sin, skin, Satan answered the Lord. 
A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. He's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. And then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights. But no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Father God, we thank you for your word. Even when it's hard for us to understand or to comprehend or it raises questions inside of us, we are so grateful for it because we believe it's true. We trust it. And so God, we pray that um, man, you would help us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our Redeemer lives and at the end he will stand on the dust. And as we lean into this series and these hard things and the, the, the stuff that life brings, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your faithfulness and your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hypothetical story. Completely hypothetical. I once heard about a hypothetical boy who was the oldest family of four boys. <clears throat> and on Sunday mornings, they would, as a family, mom, dad, and the four boys, go to church. Boys get ready faster than girls, and so four boys and a dad would end up sitting in a car in the driveway waiting on mom to go to church. Hypothetical story. And dad, in his frustration and his impatience, would begin to blame mom for why we were going to be late to church yet again. Hypothetical story. I heard this a lot, right? It's not a hypothetical story. Over and over again, she's always late. She's making us late to church. I just don't understand why it takes so long to get ready. She was in the bathroom before any of us were. I mean, just, you name it. Can you guess what I do when we're late these days? A little, little bit of blaming going on. I'm always looking for someone to blame when, when we're late. And, you know, I think it's that way, like, that's a small thing. But when we begin to think about our lives, the practical, the day-in, day-out rhythms of our life, when we can't explain something, we look to blame. It's like our natural fleshly response. When we've got emotions that we aren't sure how to express, they just get vomited out in and as blame. Maybe it's something smaller, hypothetical. Most of us have faced times in life that we can't explain. Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now. Maybe you're in one of those seasons where there are emotions rising up in you that you, you're not able to, to identify or know what to do with. And as you hit those things, you, like me, become a blamer. 
You know, oftentimes in our flesh, that is our identity. We're blamers. We believe that blame is going to give us control. And we see that very same response from Job's wife in this story, this unlikely story. Chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like, this has to be God's fault. Like, I am blaming God. This, there is no other explanation. He is the one that we will blame. And yet the irony of it is that the setup of the story, everything about Job, his story becomes case in point that what happens to us in this life isn't always a direct correlation to our behavior in this life. The man was a man of integrity. He was incredibly religious, so much so that he made sacrifices for his children. He was a good businessman. He was, like, like he was the epitome, the greatest man in the East. And yet these terrible tragedies happen. You know, when we struggle to answer certain questions... When we get to the end of that blaming and we're still wrestling with what the answer to a hard question is, I believe that many times we blame God. Like when we don't know where else to turn, we just begin to turn and blame him. We get to questions like, why do good things happen to bad people? Or the, the inverse, why do bad things happen to good people? It's got to be God's fault. We may not say it that way, but that begins to be the attitude of our heart and of our mind. We ask questions like, if Scripture is God's Word, then how come there are inconsistencies in the way that it's been passed down throughout the age? I mean, if it's His Word and those are there, like, it's got to be God's fault, right? In today's day and age, we begin to ask hard questions like, how could people, how could people who call themselves Christians be so hateful? So hateful to people who identify as gay, who identify as something that we don't like, something that maybe isn't even sinful, and yet we express hate towards them at times. It's got to be God's fault. Surely God made them that way, to be angry at those who aren't like them. We come to questions like, how can hell be real? Like, that sounds like a terrible place. How can it be real? I blame God for that. We ask questions like, well, how, is Jesus really the only way? How can he be the only way? I mean, if God really loved us, wouldn't he make another way? I, I blame God for that. Like, that's just... When we hit these tough questions and we're not sure what to do with the emotions that they stir in us or, or we're not sure how to, to find the answer or maybe we've searched really hard and in really good places and yet we're still struggling to find an answer, our lack of an answer many times causes us to blame God. We see it in Job's wife and as we work through the book we're going to see it in his friends. And So what does Job's unlikely story teach us about the God that we blame? And how should maybe God's word influence the way that we view these things instead of bringing them through our filter first? We're blamers. We're blamers. You know, as we think about the character of God in this story, we think about these interactions between God and Satan. And as you think about those interactions, maybe reflect on them this week, I want you to notice that 
Satan has to get permission for anything he is going to do to Job. And there's a great comfort in that. Satan can't do anything to you without God's permission. He can't lay a finger on you without asking God first. And that's the God whose word that we read and trust. That's the God that I serve. Is it the God that you serve? You see, while we're busy blaming God for Satan's actions, God shoulders the blame. He shoulders all that blame that that people are throwing at him, and he begins to protect us from things that are far worse. He, He protects us in ways that we can't see or understand. And as we think about those things and those truths and these interactions that we see between God and Satan, it causes us logically to think that there must be a greater purpose in our suffering, one that we can't yet see. And that's why we go on this journey to, to seek him. And, and that's why we, we, we are willing to endure and to persevere, as Katie talked about, so that we can see God's purpose even when it doesn't seem like he loves us. You know, God shouldering the blame in Job's story ultimately pushes us forward to the story of Jesus Christ. You see, we're blamers, but Jesus is the blame taker. If you've got your Bibles, or if you want to follow on the screen, we're going to go to John 19, verses 6 through 17. Jesus is on trial. And as we read this, we're going to see that when the Jews couldn't explain Jesus' blamelessness, they blamed him for claiming to be the blameless Son of God. We read, when the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. Pilate couldn't find anything to blame on Jesus. The Jews said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And so when they could find nothing to blame on him, they blamed him for claiming to be the blameless son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? Go ahead to the next slide, please. But Jesus did not give him an answer. And so Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And as we read those things, I want us to think. When Pilate asked Jesus those questions, man, if, if I were in his shoes, yeah, how easy it would have been for me to say, Judas turned me in, dude. You want to know why I'm here? Because Judas turned me in. That's why I'm here. You know why I'm here by myself? Because all my disciples ran away. That's what I would have done. But Jesus is silent. And he eventually responds by saying, you would have no authority over me at all. Sound like that encounter between God and Satan? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. And this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement. And it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he told the Jews, Here is your king. 
And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And then he handed him over to be crucified. And then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Carrying the cross by himself. Given opportunity to blame others, he did not. Carrying the cross by himself. He carried it by himself because he was unwilling to to blame someone else, to put the weight of the world's sins on someone else. And eventually we read in other places that he collapses under the weight of the cross, but that doesn't keep him from carrying the weight of your sin. You see, we're blamers. More than likely, most of us have probably blamed someone already today. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is our blame taker. He took it and he carried it for us. He gladly takes the blame to free you from shame. And when we realize that and we let that sink in, that despite the fact that we're blamers and we would blame whoever to be in control and to have the answers and to free ourselves from having to think about the emotions that are swirling inside of us, and we realize that in spite of all that, Jesus took the weight, he took the blame, then we have to take some action. We, we need to quit blaming God long enough to realize that our enemy is not God, but it is the one who is prowling around trying to make it look that way. You see, we get so caught up in who God is in these interactions that we forget about Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us of Satan's character. It says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. You know, the word Satan in the book of Job, it literally means the accuser. He's looking for someone to blame. That's all that he is doing. And he's so good at doing it. Sometimes he comes to us and he says, you're to blame for what's happening in your life. If only you'd been a better person. If only you hadn't made that mistake. You're the one who's to blame for what's happening in your life. Think Job was tempted to think that at times? Probably. Other times, he points the finger at other people. Well, they're to blame. They're to blame for what's happening in your life. If they hadn't made those bad choices, if they hadn't done this, if they hadn't done that to you at such and such an age or whatever, they're to blame for what's happening in your life. But as we think about Job's story, the people in his life, they're not to blame. And if those things don't work, Satan's really good at lying to us, accusing us and saying, well, God's to blame for what's happening in your life. If you can't figure it out rationally, logically, surely God's to blame. He's in control. He's the authority. Surely he's the one that you should blame. All the while, his name is the accuser. There is a portion of my heart that will forever be stuck as a middle school boy, and that portion of my heart is beating very proudly in this moment. As I can say as an application point, the blamer is the flamer. The blamer is the flamer. As he prowls around trying to blame us, trying to blame the people in our lives, trying to blame God himself, he is the one who is working against us. He is the one who is doing those things. 
Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You know, Jesus not only took the blame that you've already thrown at God, but the spirit that, that Christ sent in his place transforms you so that you can forsake blame. You don't have to keep being a blamer. And for many of us, we don't ever consider that as an option. That because of what Christ has done in taking our blame and because of the spirit that he sends to live inside of us as believers, we can forsake blame. We can be blame forsakers. We don't have to keep living the way that we've always lived. You can abandon it. You can fight against it and win. You can leave the old way behind and live differently. Imagine living in a world where people abandoned blame. It wasn't an option. Sounds pretty good. Job becomes an example of this in these first two chapters. We read in chapter 1, verse 22. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Man, how do we end up in that place? What are the steps that we can take to becoming a blame forsaker? How can we live differently because of what Christ has done in taking our blame? I want to give us three things that are kind of big picture for us as we walk through this series together as a church. Because here's the thing. I believe deep down inside of me that if we really want to wrestle with the tough questions, if we want to ask the really hard questions that people throughout all the ages have been asking, questions about purpose and suffering, questions about God's word, questions about morality and the meaning of life, if we want to dig into and wrestle with those questions like Job is about to do with his friends, then at the bare minimum, we have to be willing at the beginning to say, I'm not going to blame God while I wrestle through these things with him. So how can we do that? Number one is this, a commitment to seeking God. Job's desire um, is to not do evil, right? And as all these evil things happen, all these terrible things happen, he continues to worship. Now, there, there is so much more to this series than, hey, just don't blame God. If you don't blame God, life's going to be okay. There's so much more to it, but there's certainly not less. Not blaming him is the starting line to actually wrestling through these things. Because if we blame God, our journey to seek truth ends with ourselves. Think about that. If we blame God before we ever wrestle through any of these things, then what we've said is that I figured it out. This is God's fault. And anything that comes after that is coming from me. I am the source of truth. And so I just want to invite you. I mean, like, I don't know everybody's story. Like, I didn't know all of Katie's story as she shared this morning. And I love that about how God has created humanity. And so whether you're here for the first time, whether you've been here for a long time, whether you've been a Christian a long time, like whoever you are, right, my typical lines, whoever you are, I want to invite you into this incredible season of seeking the Lord without blaming him. Like, Lord, I just, I'm just going to be open to let your word teach me truth instead of believing that I can come to all these conclusions on my own and that I'm the truth. How are we going to do that? In the middle of the book, Job chapter 19, verse 25, is one of the most powerful verses that, that I can think of. We've got a, a beautiful picture of it over on the chalkboard. Uh, Job 19, 25 says this, But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, 
he will stand on the dust. And so in the middle of Job's suffering, in the middle of all Job's questioning, this is what Job knows. This is what Job knows is the truth. And so what I want to ask you to do is, man, put this verse real deep inside of you for the next couple of months. And if you're skeptical and you want to let go of this verse after those two months, that's up to you. But I want to invite you to this process where you, man, you memorize this. You take a picture, you pull that picture up every day, you write it on your bathroom mirror, whatever it is, like, there's an app that I use to memorize scripture. I'll tell you about that if you want to know. Like, like, put this inside of you and let this be the thing that reminds you. I'm not blaming God because I'm not the source of truth. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will be the one who's standing on the dust. Number one, the first step to, not, uh, to being a blame forsaker is a commitment to seeking the Lord. Number two, a commitment to not blame. This is like tough, and you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense, but it's also like really hard. I'm going to get in my car today, and my kids are going to say something, and I'm probably going to want to blame them for something that's going on in our family. Like, it just happens. But I want us to make this commitment. Job's suffering never went to blame, right? Even when his wife challenged him. And then his friends come around, and they sit in dust with torn clothing for seven days. You see, here's the thing about blame, that if we think about it, it might help us to stop doing. Blame is the opposite of accountability. Blame is the opposite of accountability. And accountability requires being vulnerable. And so if we're going to stop blaming, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to to be willing to, to say, you know what, I might be wrong. We have to submit ourselves to that process. We have to own what we can. And so I just think it would be cool, uh, in addition to, like, necessary if we are being changed by Christ daily, if as a church we said, you know what, as we go through these tough questions, let's begin to see if the Lord will transform us into not being blamers, but to being blame forsakers. I'm not going to blame. And that doesn't mean don't mess with stuff or shove stuff under the rug. It just means I'm going to learn to deal with my emotions in a different way. I'm going to process and take things to the Lord instead of thinking that I've got to figure it out and figure out the root cause and, the, and who to, who's to blame at the end of all this right now. A commitment to seeking God, a commitment to not blame. And last but not least, in this next season, I want you to make a commitment to a community group. Job's friends sit with him in his suffering. Now, as we get into these next few weeks, we're going to see that his friends also said some really stupid things. And when they do that, I'm like, man, welcome to community group. We're going to sit together and some people are going to say some really stupid things. <laughs> it's great. I love that. And I love that because, man, if you sit in these questions alone, if you sit in your suffering alone, if you sit in your hard times alone, guess who's going to win? the accuser. He's going to convince you that you've done something wrong, that they've done something wrong, that God's done something wrong. And our willingness to just build community together, to sit with one another in messy, like we may not be in ashes and torn clothing, or we might, I don't know. But to sit together and to have a safe space to say stupid things as we try to figure out who the Lord is to let his word teach us instead of us trying to be the source of truth. 
It's crucial. And yet Satan has been so good, especially in America, at telling us that we can figure out the answers to these questions by ourselves with our brains. and Pushing us away from one another. So our groups in this season are going to wrestle with some other hard questions. You see them on the screen. Do we need to defend our faith? Is there a God? Does absolute truth exist? Is Jesus God? Aren't all religions the same? What proof does my testimony offer? Uh, and group leaders are going to work through, there's some video curriculum and some discussion. Uh, there's a list of those. Uh, they're like, it's like everywhere right now. I'm not even sure where all it is, so I'm not going to list them all off. But we're going to talk about it at the end. But find a group. Find a group. If you don't know where to find one, find me. Find somebody at the coffee bar. We're going to get you. We can help you do that, all right? It's so important because if you sit in these questions alone, the accuser wins. He wins. <clears throat> Those are the three things that I want us to, to, to take as this big picture application over the next two months. To memorize Job 19.25 as we seek the Lord. To, to not blame. To not blame as we seek to be transformed by Christ. And to get in a group so that we can work this out together. That we can build true and genuine community to talk about these hard questions. My uh, injury has kept me on the couch a lot. It has kept me at home a lot more. Um, and days that Caitlin works, at the end of the day, uh, there's this very short window where all three kids are in my home with me, the cripple. And um, I'm thankful for it. I really am thankful for it uh, because those relational things are, are so worth it. But it's also, especially the youngest right now, uh, that's a challenge. That is a challenge. Like, try to catch that kid on a scooter. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, so much fun. So one of the days that this was happening, I had been sitting on the couch that day. I had a bag of pretzels, almost finished, sitting on the little table beside my spot. And as the day's nearing the end, you know, I'm just trying to, like, slowly roll behind people and, like, pick up one toy at a time so that, like, we can see the floor by dinner time. And all of a sudden, I hear this terrible sound. And the pretzel bag, with all the salt in the bottom, gets dumped into the couch. I'm like, I don't have anything to say, guys. It just is what it is. And then my next thought is this. Daggone it, Caitlin. Like, if you'd just be here, if you'd just be home, this wouldn't have happened. Like, why do I do that? That's, like, that is silly. And yet, so many of us do things like that, right? And then, lo and behold, a couple minutes later, phone rings. It's Caitlin. Hey, hon, how was your day? Fine. How was yours? Conversation goes on, right? You've had these conversations. She doesn't know anything's wrong, and in my head, somehow she's to blame for everything that's going on in the house right now. Needless to say, the conversation wasn't very long. <laughs> so we get off the phone. Caitlin, you don't understand. There's just utter chaos. And in my head, I finish the sentence by saying, and it's all your fault. Guess what that evening was like in our home? <laughs> so nice. No, I'm just kidding. It's terrible, right? It's terrible. Because we're blamers. 
And blame just dumps the emotions of difficult circumstances without first identifying what those emotions really are. And when we stop blaming, we get the opportunity to really dig in and explore not only what we're feeling and the hard questions that are swirling in our minds and our lives, but we get the opportunity when we'll pause and press pause on blaming, we get the opportunity to see how good and how beautiful God is in the midst of our hard times. We're blamers, but Jesus is the blame taker. He takes that. And he took it all to the cross. And now, in and through him, we can walk away from blame. We can abandon it. We can leave it behind. Not because we're really good self-disciplined people, but because the Lord is transforming and changing our lives. Today, if you're, if you're a believer the next steps are really clear, right? Like, I've, I hammered those home. We know what we're talking about. But for some of you today, it might have just clicked for you that you don't have a real relationship with, with that God. And it might have even clicked for you that you don't have that relationship because you spent all your time blaming him for everything that's happened in your life. Man, if that's you, I just want to invite you to give your heart to the Lord. To stop blaming him for just a second and say, Lord, I trust that you are my redeemer. You changed my life and that you are alive. And at the end of all these things that I go through in life, you will be the one who's standing. And so, Lord, I want to give my life to you. For some of you, that may be something new that you're hearing from you. Like, you've heard invitations a thousand times before and never realized that you were actually holding out on God. You were blaming him while saying to everybody else that you're a Christian. But I just want to invite you. I just want to invite you in. Like, please, lay down. Lay down the blame. And lay down your life. And let the blame taker transform you. If that's you today... I or one of the pastor elders would love to just pray with you as we respond. And for the rest of us, we think about our commitment to one another, to continue to be changed, to build community as we wrestle with these things together. And one of the ways that we affirm that is through taking the Lord's Supper. Because when we come forward and we take the Lord's Supper as a church, we say so many things and we remember the centrality of Christ on the cross. That's where he took the blame. But as we do it, we remember that that moment, the fact that Jesus took our blame, that is the thing that allows us as a body, as a community, man, to come together and to wrestle with these things together and to be together as we take next steps. And so today as we take the Lord's Supper, we're just mindful that the Lord is taking us on a journey over these next couple months to wrestle with all these times that don't seem like love. And we remember that blame is the opposite of accountability. And accountability requires vulnerability, and that may require something of us that we haven't given to our church family in a season. So I just want to invite you to, uh, if, if you're a baptized believer in Christ, to, to come forward and take part by dipping a piece of bread in the juice to remember, to remember that Christ took your blame, but also to, to remember that he's placed you in this church family to walk together in that new community where you're forsaking blame. The band's going to come back up.
We're going to sing. We're going to respond. For those of you that need to give before we pray for our offering, you can do so in the cans in the back. And the invitation still stands to those of you who maybe realize today for the very first time that you've been blaming God instead of having an actual relationship with him. You've been your truth instead of allowing the truth of God to transform you. If that's you, like I said, I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you. Just share with you. Listen, as Katie said earlier. So thankful that you're here today. So thankful for the gospel of Christ. I pray that the Spirit would give you the courage to respond as we stand uh, and sing in this time. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for taking our blame. Uh, and God, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for inviting us into uh, this season here at Christ Community where we can wrestle with hard things together. And uh, God, we just pray that today your spirit would be among us, uh, that your spirit would do something in our hearts and in our lives that only he could do, that we, we walk out of this place and say, man, like there are so many things that, that weren't happening or weren't good or that I didn't get, but I know the Spirit did this. Like there's no other explanation than God moved in my life and I need to respond to that. And so to that Spirit, I say, come, move, change us, make us new. We pray all this in, in your name, God. Amen.